Let us pray. Once more, O oh God, come and draw near and pour your spirit into our hearts and renew our minds and our bodies that we might be more and more filled with your word and filled with your spirit and lead the lives that you call us to in a pleasing way. Grant us always knowledge of your son, Jesus, who has died for our sins and taken from us those very sins that stand before us, that we ourselves in Christ might come before you and seek after the grace and the favor and the kindness that you continually offer to your people. And we ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. When I was younger, I really got into collecting comic books. And of course, when we hear the word comic books, what do most of us think of? We think of superheroes, Superman and Batman, Spider-Man, the X-Men, and all the others that are out there. I've loved superheroes. I've always loved superheroes. And I think a lot of us do enjoy superheroes, whether we admit it or not in certain ways, because the ideal of the superhero is to sacrifice himself for others. At least that was the ideal in the past. These days, we love to deconstruct our superheroes and give them all the wrong motivations. Much of what we get presented today is more of the anti-hero, the guy who grumpily does what he knows is right, but he doesn't want to do it, but he only does it because he doesn't want people to not like him, or he doesn't really care if people don't like him. He's just going to do it anyway and do it in the worst way possible and in the grouchiest way possible. That seems to be what most of our superheroes are like today. They only do it because they're forced to do it. They don't really want to do it because they care about people. They do it out of a sense of ego to make themselves look better, or they do it utterly and completely begrudgingly, not out of love, but simply out of indifference. And that is the difference between superheroes of our day and age, I think, and superheroes of the past. Superheroes of the past were doing it and being heroes most of the time for the right reasons. They had tragic backstories oftentimes. Something terrible happened to them in the past and that sent them on this trajectory toward heroism. But nonetheless, they pursued being a hero. They embraced that vocation that was handed to them by fate in their universes. Fate gave them the powers that they had or gave them the intelligence that they had, the ability that they had to fight crime, to fight villains. And so they embraced it and moved forward in the new life that was given to them. They embraced their calling, their vocation to pursue justice, to pursue truth, to pursue all that was set before them that involved being a hero. And in all of that, we hear many Christian connotations, Christian overtones, that whether these creators wanted to admit it or not, these heroes all have a Christ-likeness to them. They aren't Christ in their stories, but they are Christ-like. They kind of, in a sense, stand in for him in these stories, being willing to do whatever it takes to help the other. But even more so, they give us a picture of the Christian life in a way. 
because they answer their vocations. They submit to their calling, and they pursue it with gusto. I purposely transition into using that language of vocation because it's a Christian word. It's a word that we don't use often enough. And that was the one thing that came to mind as I read through these verses in Ephesians 5, 15 through 6, 9. This huge section. There's a lot of stuff in here. Oftentimes, you would probably hear at least four sermons on this. Or maybe eight or twelve or sixteen sermons. Just breaking this down paragraph by paragraph. Little chunk by little chunk. Looking at each aspect of what's happening in these passages. But today we're just going to get the flyover view and look at just the big picture of what's happening and how all of this is really linked together. And it's all linked together with this concept of vocation because that is what this is about. The Christian life is the life of vocation, the life of calling. And that's what we're going to walk through this day. Vocation is not a word that we often use, I don't think. We don't hear the word vocation get brought up very often. We might speak of bivocational ministers acknowledging that they have this vocation and calling to be a minister and maybe they have this other job outside of work, outside of the ministry. Or we talk about vocational ministry, someone who is specially called to ministry, to preaching and teaching the Word of God. But we often, I don't think, use this word vocation to apply to our everyday lives, to every Christian life. Because in this broad use of the word, we embrace what it is that God is doing in our lives. That we do not have one singular vocation. We have a foundational one, yes, that of being Christians and called by God. But on top of that foundation of being called by God, there's also all of our other vocations, the multiple callings that each one of us has in our lives that even, I would say, that non-believers have in their lives too. Even non-believers are called into their vocations by God through His working and His ordering of providence. We all have multiple callings, and God in mysterious ways is working through them. But especially for us Christians, He is working through them to bring about His will, His desire for us to be sanctified, for us to be changed more and more into Christ, to look more and more like Christ in every moment of our lives. What you do is what God has called you to do. That is, your vocations are exactly where you are at this moment. And God is working in you to actually know and to know Him more and to more fully transform who and what you are that you might better walk in the light and might better be light as opposed to being darkness. Because that's what Paul was talking about in our last section. Being light and not darkness anymore. That we used to be darkness, but we've been called light. We are light in the Lord. We have been filled with the Spirit. And out of that being filled with the Spirit and made light in the Lord, Paul turns his eyes to this idea, this broad idea of vocation and callings in our lives. And if these are callings that God has given us, then He will give us the grace we need because He is working in us to change us more and more into the likeness of Christ. That is the purpose of our vocations is to work through us to serve others. And in that serving of others in those vocations, we are changed more and more to look like Jesus. And that's what the Father desires is for us to more and more look like Jesus. That is the end goal 
our transformation to become more and more like Jesus in every way. Until Jesus returns and we are fully glorified and enter into that state where sin has finally been purged from us. So let's dive into looking at this long section of Ephesians, hearing that word vocation over and over and seeing how vocation is part and parcel of what Paul is talking about today. And these verses will start with just simply verse 15. And we'll spend a lot of time in these first few verses and then just kind of especially briefly go through the next three sections, the next three big chunks to see how this all plays out and to get a big overview. But here Paul speaks to the Ephesians telling them to look carefully then how you walk. You've been made into light. You have been brought out of darkness. Discern, he says earlier in verse 10, what is pleasing to the Lord. And so he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as wise, not as unwise, but as wise. You were once darkness and have been made light. You were once asleep and now you are awake and risen from the dead. Christ is shining on you. He will shine on you. He will pour your glory upon you. So therefore, look carefully what you're doing. Be careful in how you walk in the world. Make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul is just hammering the Ephesians with commandments, not recommendations, but commandments. Look carefully. Make the best use. Don't be foolish. Understand. We've been enabled to do all of these things because we have been awoken from our sleep. We have awakened from our sleep by the power of the Spirit inside of us, exposing the brokenness within. But here in this shift toward vocation, I think it makes sense when Paul says something like, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Take everything that you do and submit it to the will of Christ. Submit it to the word of God. Walk carefully and understand what the will of the Lord is. The will of the Lord is revealed in various ways throughout Scripture. Over in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, Paul says, The will of the Lord is your sanctification, your being made holy, you being changed into the likeness of Christ. In other places, the will of the Lord is simply the Ten Commandments leading and guiding the believer's life, revealing the sin within in order that we would confess and turn back to the Lord and see how it is that we can walk in the light of the Lord. Here in this immediate passage, understanding what the will of the Lord is, is to understand that you were once darkness and now are light. Don't go back to darkness. Don't go back to the way you used to live, and that's why you have to look carefully. You look carefully in order to avoid stumbling back into that old way of darkness. Because we need the Lord to defend and cleanse His church, as our colleague said earlier, we have to be on guard by the power of the Spirit working in us. And that's how we look and understand. We keep an eye on ourselves and our hearts and our minds, knowing that our hearts can be tempted away from the Lord in just a literal heartbeat. And so we look at what we're doing and we understand what the will of the Lord is, that He desires us to walk with Him. He, he wants us to walk in the light, to follow His Word, to see His Ten Commandments as that guiding stone for us, that guiding light that points northward toward Jesus, revealing when we wander off, but showing us a path moving forward, a blessing and goodness in God. 
always knowing that we can turn back to the Lord if we fail. When we fail, when we break the commandments, we can confess. And Paul continues in talking about this understanding the will of the Lord in light of things like our sanctification, the Ten Commandments, and not walking in darkness, but walking in the light. As he goes on in verses 18 through 20, talking about not getting drunk with wine, but instead getting filled with the Spirit. Putting two things in opposition here. Drunkenness with wine. Being foolish. Living wickedly. Because that's what drunkenness will lead to. Notice he doesn't say, and do not drink wine. He says, do not get drunk. The action of losing control, of becoming controlled by the wine itself, by the alcohol and by the things that inebriate and make drunk and cause drunkenness. Don't go there. Don't let those things control you. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. Give the Spirit room to work. The Spirit has been given to you. You have been filled in the Spirit. Now be filled with the Spirit. You walk in the Spirit. And so follow Him. Follow the Spirit because He is here with you. And in following the Spirit, you're going to address one another as the church in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. These psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs have a lot of back and forth of, is this talking about just one type of music or is this three kinds of music? It doesn't really matter. And what I'm doing right now, all is, the main thing is that we're addressing praises to one another we are talking to one another. We are fellowshipping. We are confessing the work of the Lord in our lives, the work of the Lord in the church's life even more so. We are gathering in worship, using psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And in doing that, we sing out loud. And if we can't sing out loud, we make melody to the Lord with our hearts. We rejoice not only outwardly, but inwardly. For that inward rejoicing is the foundation that leads our will to act. As I said just a few weeks ago, as I love to point out Cramner's understanding here, the heart leads to the will, leads to the mind. And so we make melody in our hearts because the Spirit has changed our hearts to rejoice in the work of the Lord, not only in me as an individual, not only in you as an individual, but in the church as a whole. We have been bound up together, one with another made the body of Christ here on earth. And so we sing to one another, we Sing in our hearts and sing with our mouths. And in singing with our hearts and mouths, we rejoice. We give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus. We do everything in the name of Jesus. We give thanks to the Father through Jesus in the name of Jesus. And in that, Paul turns us to remind us that as we are addressing one another and fellowshipping, in the name of Jesus, and giving thanks in the name of Jesus, we now submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Out of fear and love and joy and honor and reverence, revering Christ for who He is, worshiping Him for who He is, we submit one to one another. We practice servanthood. We pursue caring for one another. And that is the crux of our vocations. Submitting to one another. Luther loved to say, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And that's where our vocations play such a beautiful role in serving not only the body of Christ, but the wider world. Our vocations are where we love others, 
where we serve our neighbors, where we love our neighbors, and in loving our neighbors, we can love God. Yes, we love God also with our hearts and our worship, but we also love God as we serve others because we're doing it in the name of Jesus. We're doing it out of reverence for Christ. Our vocations drive us to submit one to another. And in that submission, there are different ways of submitting. And I think that's part of what Paul shows here in these next three parts. As he looks at wives and husbands, children and parents, bond servants or slaves and masters. These are all different ways of submission on both sides of the coin. Not only are the wives submitting to their husbands, but in a unique way, the husbands are submitting to the wives. Not only do children submit to parents, but parents submit to children in a special way. Bond servants submit to masters, but masters must submit to their bond servants in a special way because we are to serve one another in Christ. And we submit to one another in Christ. And so let's look at these three particular vocations that Paul talks about here that I think become a general picture of the vocational life for us. That become a picture of how to live in Christ, even whether we're married or not, whether we have a job or not. But these are a picture of how we can live in Christ. Beginning in verse 22, Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is this himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In each of these sections, Paul starts with the one who is under authority, who is under another person, who is under another's guidance and goodwill when all things are equal, that the wives are to submit, to follow, to listen to their husbands as to the Lord. For in a similar way as Christ is the head of the church, the husband acts as head of the wife. And the church is the body of Christ, and Christ is its Savior. Now the husband doesn't save his wife, but he certainly works for the good of his wife. And that's the picture that Paul is crafting here, is that we as a church submit to Christ because of why? Christ laid down his life for us. He works in us. He changes us. He cares for us and has compassion and mercy towards us, his body. That's how the church is able to submit to Christ because he has laid the groundwork for our submission because he served us to the death. And so the church can respond to Christ because Christ served us to his death. And in the same way, Paul tells wives to submit to their husbands because their husbands are to act as Christ. Their husbands are to act and care for and love their wives to enable the wives to more fully submit and serve and love their husbands because the husbands create the foundation of love and care and mercy. That is the biblical picture that Paul is painting here of one of the husbands laying down their own lives and in that way submitting to their wives by giving up themselves to care for their wives and their families. And so, of course, in that grand scheme, Paul can tell wives to submit to their husbands because if their husbands are believers, they should be acting in the proper way toward their wives, caring for them as Christ has cared for the church. And so he begins with the wife telling her to submit to her husband 
And he turns to the husbands and say, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. Here is the heaviest burden of all. Love your wives, husbands, as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. We husbands are called to care for our wives in, the same, in a similar fashion as Christ has cared for the church. Christ gave himself up in order that he might sanctify, that he might set apart, that he might make holy his church. And in that process of making her holy, he cleanses her by the, water, by the washing of water with the word. The church is cleansed by the very baptisms that he has given, the baptism that he has given to us. To be baptized in the name of the Trinity is to be brought into the church and to be washed by the Lord. And he does that, that he would present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, so that she might be holy and without blemish. Once more, the husbands can't save their wives, but the way that we husbands act toward our wives will guide them and help them and grow them in sanctification, grow them closer to the Lord because he has cleansed them. He has cleansed our wives because they have been brought into the church. And we are to embrace that cleansing and further that cleansing by leading them nearer to the Lord, by guiding them and caring for them and protecting them and watching over them. Because that is the job, the vocation that God has called husbands to do. In the same way, husbands, love your wives as your own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Paul adds another layer of the work of the husband of loving their wives by reminding them that husbands and wives are one body. So husbands, love your wives because she is part of you. She is one with you. If you don't love your wife, then you don't love yourself. So love your wife. Care for her. You care for your body, do you not? You care for your own physical body. Now care for the body of your wife who is one body with you. Nourish and cherish this body that Christ has given to you, that the Lord has given to you in marriage. Because Christ does that for the church, husbands. And this is drawn out of Genesis. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They shall be bound together by the work of the Lord and covenant between them. The man shall leave his old family and create anew by embracing his wife. And Paul quickly turns and says it's profound, this mystery. Ultimately, the foundational point of this mystery is to refer to Christ and the church, that Christ and the church have been made one flesh. They've been made one body because Christ is our head. We are united and bound up to him. And there is the mystery of what God was revealing in creation, of, in the creation of marriage, was that the point of marriage was to give a picture here on earth of Christ and the church. Paul doesn't grab this picture of marriage and say, oh, well, look here. This is accidental, but hey, here's a symbol of the church in Christ. No, marriage itself was written into creation in order to be that reflection. Christ and the church came first, and then marriage came to show us what Christ and the church should look like. How Christ and the church operates. And it works back and forth. Because marriage on earth without perfection is broken. We hurt one another, we harm one another, and we know that's not true of Christ and the church. But the mystery of that binding together of husband and wife is there in order 
to help us understand the binding together of Christ and the church. And Christ and the church becomes the perfect reality of which marriage is but a shadow. And so we love and submit to one another. Husbands, love your wife as yourself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband, that she honors him, that she follows him, that she receives from him his grace. And likewise, with children and parents in this vocational work, parent, children, obey your parents. Honor your father and mother. And that is the first commandment with a promise, so it will go well with you in the land. Children, do this in the Lord. Listen to your parents. Follow them. Obey them. And on the other hand, as children are submitting to their parents, he speaks to the fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do not provoke your children to wrath, fathers. And that goes for the mothers too. They are all included here. Guide your children with love. Discipline them properly and give them the right instructions of the Lord. And in doing that, you'll enable your children more and more to obey. Enable them more and more to obey the commandments that honoring your father and mother and receiving that promise that it would go well with them and that they would live long in the land. That that promise would come to be fulfilled in a unique way because we are not Israel. But that in general, the church would grow, that the church would be happy and healthy as children obey parents and fathers love and care for their children and don't provoke them to wrath. And finally, with bond servants and masters, probably the most controversial part of this section, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, Paul says to the bond servants, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. He lays what would seem like a heavy burden upon these bond servants, but he's simply asking them to live out the Christian life in their service, in their slavery. They've been made servants to other men. Treat those other men as you would Christ. Work for them with a sincere heart. Fulfill your calling before the Lord. Knowing that you do this for the Lord and not to man, and that whatever good anyone does, he will receive it back from the Lord. The Lord will repay the bondservants for their goodness, for their working from the heart. He will lift them up and give them blessings. And he turns to the masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, knowing that you have the same master. There is no partiality with this master. To do the same to them, he's telling them to serve their servants, to care for them from their hearts to have a sincere heart, to render service with goodwill toward their slaves, to treat them appropriately, to give them what they need, to take care of them from the heart, not begrudgingly, but joyfully, because the Lord has given them this relationship. And of course, this trickles down to our day in the reality of managers and bosses and employees, employers and employees. This is how we apply it today because we don't live in a culture that has servants in this way that has slaves like this and so we have to look at this and apply it in a unique way regarding our vocation recognizing that as an employee we don't serve our bosses with hatred we serve with a sincere heart we have fear and trembling as we would toward christ 
We desire to be bondservants of Christ, and we do the will of God from our hearts. Out of a heart of love for Christ, we work well for our employers. And employers, treat your employees well. Love them and care for them and provide for them what is right and appropriate and good for them. Not begrudgingly, but with a sincere and joyful heart in the Lord, knowing that you both share the same master. And that this master does not show partiality. He looks at the things that you do that flow out of your heart that he has changed. If you do not live out of that changed heart, there will be judgment to come upon all of us. As we do not live out of the right heart. And so those masters, those employers who refuse to live out of the life that Christ has given them, there will be judgment. And God will not show partiality because they're the well off. And just the same with the servants and the employees. Love the calling that God has given you. Walk in it before the Lord. And so that's where we find ourselves, these vocations rounding about us, reminding us of the will of the Lord in our lives, that we are called to these various places. We have these callings when we find ourselves resting in them. And the Lord empowers us to do the very things he calls us to do. He has made us one with himself in order that we would walk in these vocations, submitting to Christ in order that we would submit to one another and reveal the love of Christ to one another, that we would sing and make melody in our hearts and continually submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We lay down our lives for the other. We live our lives for the other because Christ lived his life for us. Our vocations are modeled after the great and glorious vocation of Messiahship that Jesus has. Our vocations follow after His. And if our vocations follow after His, then God will most certainly empower us and give us grace and give us love to walk this path that He has placed each and every one of us on. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.